This is History 2311, Week 6A, The Great Depression and the Great Migration. Lots of folks back east, they say, is leaving home every day, beating the hot old dusty way to the California line. Across the desert sands they roll, getting out of that old dust bowl. They think they're going to a sugar bowl, but here's what they find. Now the police at the port of entry say, you're number 14,000 for today. Oh, if you ain't got the do-re-mi, folks, you ain't got the do-re-mi. Why, you better go back to beautiful Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. California is a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the do-re-mi. So a couple of times this term, I have used stories in my lectures, stories of individuals as lenses on broader historical narratives. Uh, and to this point, generally the stories I've told you has been, have been the stories of famous people, famous individuals like Teddy Roosevelt or Jane Addams. Today I wanna to tell you a story and it is a true story, but the person in it, it's not a famous story. It doesn't appear in any history textbooks. So is it history? That's kind of for you to decide. And I get this story from a wonderful book called The Warmth of Other Suns, the story of America's great migration by Isabel Wilkerson. And among many, many other stories in this big book, Wilkerson tells the story of Ida Mae Gladney, who was an African-American woman born around 1915. She was a sharecropper's daughter and a sharecropper's wife in Mississippi, which means that she was a sharecropper too. Now, Ida Mae lived in a shack on a plantation in Chickasaw County, Mississippi, owned by a white man named Ed Pearson. This, this is not a picture of Ida Mae and her shack. I'm just showing you a sharecropper shack to set the scene. One night in October, this would have been 1937, Ida Mae would have been like 22 years old. She was alone in her cabin or in her cabin with her two kids. Her husband was doing errands in town when the landlord, Mr. Ed, and four other white men came pounding at the door. Apparently, Mr. Ed's turkeys were missing, turkeys that he was planning to sell for Thanksgiving. And the men were looking for her husband and his cousin, Joe Lee, who they said had stolen the turkeys. So they pounded on the door, they bust in, they were carrying chains, they threatened to beat her. She swore she didn't know where they were, but what Ida Mae didn't know was that Joe Lee was actually in the cabin or, or actually underneath it. And he made a break for it and the men chased him and caught him. And Wilkerson tells in pretty terrible detail recounted to her from Ida Mae Gladney about the beating that they gave Joe Lee. They tied his hands with wire, they took him out into the woods. He kept screaming, he didn't know anything about any turkeys. And uh, anyway, they beat him until he was almost unrecognizable. And then they took him to the county jail and threw him in there and just left him there bleeding. The next morning, the turkeys just wandered back into the pen on their own because they had never been stolen, they had just wandered off. When Ida Mae and her husband George saw the turkeys come back, they made up their minds. George got his cousin Jolie out of prison, but then George and Ida Mae bundled up the kids, a few quilts, a Bible, a small box of fried chicken, and 
nothing else, because they knew if they took any more of their stuff, people would know they were leaving. George's brother had a truck and he drove them to the train depot where they bought a ticket, but not to the north, not to Chicago, just to Tennessee in, of course, the Jim Crow car, the car for African-Americans. When they got to Tennessee, they bought tickets to St. Louis. When they got to St. Louis, they bought tickets to Chicago. And that's how Ida May and her family left the South. Now that's a Great Depression story and it's a great migration story. Is it history? The Gladneys aren't famous, they were ordinary people. And the story, although it's horrible, is also ordinary. The point is, the point of Wilkerson's book is that just about every African-American family has stories like this. In fact, the point of Wilkerson's book is to make the great migration of African-Americans out of the South equivalent in public memory to the kind of, this is how my great grandparents came to North America stories uh, that all European immigrants uh, have. I mean, every family, wherever they're from has stories of this kind, but not everybody sees themselves reflected in history. So while I talk about the Great Depression and the Great Migration today, the kind of meta thing I want you to think about is the connection between individual stories and the big picture stories of history. How are the lives of individuals part of and connected to, and, and how do they constitute the large narratives that we consider history with a capital H? But we'll begin with some top-down big picture history. And in a US history course, the top-down big picture story very often starts with the president. People called Herbert Hoover the great engineer. And when he was elected president in 1928, few presidents seemed destined for a more successful term in office. Hoover was probably the most competent, most principled, most experienced of the Republican presidents of the 1920s. Hoover was not a career politician. In fact, he had never run for office before running for president in 1928. He was an engineer and a manager. Hoover famously ran the US Food Administration during World War I, which was a new government bureau that oversaw food supplies during the war. And then after the war, he became internationally known as the head of US relief and reconstruction efforts, rebuilding roads and bridges, delivering food and medicine, uh, he became known as, as the man who rebuilt or certainly helped to rebuild the European economy after the war. Warren Harding made Hoover his Secretary of Commerce, and he stayed on as Secretary of Commerce under Coolidge, where he promoted partnership between government and business. Remember I said how characteristic it was of the politics of the 1920s that government and business were in close partnership. And so when Hoover ran for president in 1928, it was his first election campaign, and he easily won the election of 1928 against Al Smith. Al Smith was the Democratic governor of New York. He's remembered for being the first Catholic nominee for president. And because of that, the election turned in part on Smith's religion. He was the victim of a whole lot of anti-Catholic prejudice and also the issue of prohibition because Smith supported getting rid of or repealing the prohibition of alcohol. But Hoover won that election very easily. As you can see here, Smith didn't even win his home state of New York. Uh, the only state Smith won here just about were the, the Deep South, I guess also Massachusetts and Rhode Island. The Deep South didn't vote for Smith because they loved pro-alcohol Catholics from New York. They did because the South was still 
diehard loyal to the Democratic Party. But 1928 is another data point in our continuing story of political realignment, of how the two parties switched places. Because the Democrats, of course, had been the party of the white South, and since 1896 had been the party of most white farmers in the West. But until this point, they had had only mixed success with urban workers. And Al Smith's campaign and supporting the repeal of prohibition in 1928 solidified a growing association of white ethnic working class voters, people like Irish Americans, Italian Americans, Polish Americans, Czech Americans with the Democratic Party. They didn't break through and win in the North yet, but they were moving in that direction and the identities of the parties were changing. The stock market crash of October 1929 marked the beginning of the Great Depression. But remember that people didn't wake up the day after Black Tuesday and say, well, it's the Great Depression now. The scope and the duration of the economic disaster would only gradually become clear. And besides the obvious ways that the Depression was hard to live through, it was also hard to comprehend. It was, it was hard to demonstrate or to explain. In those early years of the depression, 1929, 1930, 1931, clearly something was wrong, but what was wrong, whose fault it was, how long it was going to last, what could be done about it? These were very murky questions and they were partisan political questions. Here you're looking at the unemployment rate over the course of the depression. But this kind of data, which I can just throw up on a slide, wasn't easy to get in those years. People didn't have the same kind of statistical data on the economy that we have now. They didn't necessarily know how many people were unemployed, and certainly they didn't know the future. So one of the first problems faced in dealing with the depression was representing the depression, understanding it, because an economic depression is sort of like an absence of things, an absence of jobs, an absence of money, an absence of hope. And that's not easy to talk about or to define. This is a very famous photo by Dorothea Lang of men standing in a bread line. That is unemployed men standing in line, hoping to get some handouts, some, some free food. My slides today are full of Dorothea Lang photos and I gave you a bunch of her photos as your primary source for this week. She is one of the most famous photographers of the depression. This is actually her first documentary depression photograph. Lang was a photographer. She was also a married mother of two living in San Francisco. And she had a business just taking like portrait photos of wealthy San Franciscans. But when the depression hit, that business was not doing so well. People were not putting a whole lot of money into portraits. And one day Lang went out and was taking pictures and found herself in the Mission District, one of the more run down, poorer parts of San Francisco. And she took this picture. And of course, it's a marvelous picture. Just the composition is very nice, but it's got a whole lot of emotion, a lot of pathos. Something about how the one man is facing towards us makes him isolated from the other men. He grabs our attention as an individual, but he's still faceless in a way. For me, the picture kind of gets towards the thing I was talking about with Ida Mae Gladney, which is what is the relationship between individual stories, and I wish I knew who this man was, what his story was, and the big aggregate collective story of something like the Great Depression. 
And this, as it turned out, was Dorothea Lange's great gift was finding the human faces of the depression or putting human faces on the depression, giving people a way to connect and feel a human connection, an empathic human connection with the savage economic news of the day. The White Angel Breadline, by the way, was a private charity set up by a woman named Lois Jordan, who the White Angel Breadline, by the way, was a private charity set up by a wealthy California woman named Lois Jordan, who fed more than a million men during the Depression just from her own fortune. And it was Jordan who named herself the White Angel, which seems a little rich to me, but nevertheless, it was a very generous thing for her to do. The reason there was need for private charities like the White Angel Breadline, of course, is that the government, the Hoover government, did very little to help the victims of the Depression. The orthodox economic theory of this era said that, you know, economic downturns were inevitable. There are good economic times and there are bad economic times. And bad times can't be prevented. They're sort of like getting a cold. You just have to let them run their course. Uh, and someone like Hoover would say that trying to interfere with the workings of the market would just do more harm than good. Back in 1922, Hoover actually wrote a book describing his economic philosophy called American Individualism. And the book was a defense of individualism. But what Hoover championed was not selfish individualism, but a kind of moral idealistic individualism. He said, you can't ever force anyone to do anything but you can appeal to their higher natures. He said people must willingly choose to be productive, to be altruistic, to be unselfish. You could see that in these posters that Hoover's Food Administration produced during the First World War. Be patriotic, sign a pledge to save food. Little Americans, do your bit by eating cornmeal and not wheat cereals, by leaving nothing on your plate. The textbook, The American Yop, describes Hoover's politics as a kind of business progressivism. And I, I think that's fair. There was a moralistic element to Hoover's politics, but he wanted people to volunteer to be moral, never to force them. In 1930, as president with the economy in free fall, Hoover invited all of the great business leaders of the country, the CEOs of US Steel and General Motors and so on. He invited them all to the White House and he appealed to their better nature. He asked them voluntarily not to fire people and not to cut wages. He asked these businesses if they would voluntarily sacrifice some profits for the greater good. But he would not compel them. He was strongly opposed to you know, direct government intervention in the economy. He said that way lies socialism or fascism, just as he was opposed to direct government aid to those in need. He did believe you could appeal to people's individual morality and to corporations' individual morality. Well, the CEOs, the big businesses agreed to do what they could to preserve wages. But within a year in 1931, with no end in sight, U.S. Steel broke the voluntary agreement it had made with Hoover, laid off thousands of workers, and all the other corporations followed suit. By early 1932, over 10 million Americans were out of work, nearly 20% of the workforce. And in some industrial cities like Chicago and Detroit, the unemployment rate was much higher. It was like 50%. Toledo, Ohio reported an amazing 80% unemployment in 1932. 
The winter of 1930 brought a new wave of bank failures, not just the rural farmers banks that had been failing for years, but now big urban banks were collapsing. Uh, like 1300 banks collapsed in 1930, another 2000 banks collapsed in 1931. Speaking of private charity, this is a photograph of Al Capone's soup kitchen in Chicago. Capone was America's most notorious gangster. He was a, he sold illegal booze, he ran protection rackets in prohibition era Chicago, but he also opened these soup kitchens, giving away food and coffee and donuts to the unemployed. This was kind of a PR stunt for Capone. He, he liked to think of himself as a modern day Robin Hood. And the food he was giving away was probably stolen or fell off a truck somewhere. Nevertheless, he fed hundreds every day. And the fact that gangsters were doing more for the unemployed than the federal government shows the, the limits of the kind of orthodox economic theory of the day, the limits of Hoover's insistence on individualism, or if you like, on interpreting events at an individual scale. Hoover felt the job of the government was not to intervene in the economy, but to restore the confidence of investors and business. So his public pronouncements were always optimistic. Hoover was always saying, recovery is just around the corner even as those pronouncements became more and more discordant with reality. That's the joke of this cartoon. Hundreds of unemployed men sitting in the park reading, I see by the papers, everything is all right. The Hoover government did make some efforts to respond to the depression, but remained opposed to any kind of direct federal handout or relief. They said, if you give people relief, they'll become lazy and dependent. So in December, 1930, the Hoover approved something like $45 million to help save the starving livestock of Dust Bowl farmers, but he vetoed money to feed the farmers themselves. So people said Hoover was willing to feed jackasses, but not starving babies. Here's a picture of a shanty town of like homeless shacks. Well, I, sh I shouldn't call them homeless. Those are homes, but they are, they're shacks built by people who have nowhere else to go. But these kind of camps grew up in all sorts of American cities and were known as Hoovervilles, placing the blame squarely on Herbert Hoover. I think this is a great picture. I feel a little bit funny using it as an example of how rotten the economy was in 1932, because of course we have homeless camps today. We have homeless camps right here in London. We don't see them as emblematic of our era the way these photos of Hoovervilles are instant visual symbols of the depression, but maybe we should. The most famous or infamous shanty town of the early 1930s was the Bonus Army of 1932. Back in the mid-20s, in 1924, Congress passed the Bonus Act, which promised that the government would pay all Great War veterans, all World War I veterans, a bonus for their service. But the pay took the form of an insurance policy that would not pay out until 1945. It was kind of like meant to be an old age pension for veterans. But when the hard times of the depression hit, the veterans started agitating to cash in their bonus certificates early. And in the summer of 1932, thousands of unemployed veterans of the Great War converged in Washington, lobbying for early payment of their bonuses. And they called themselves the Bonus Expeditionary Force or the Bonus Army. And they built this huge camp in the center of Washington, D.C., on the mall, I think. But the government refused to pay the bonuses. They voted against payment and the demonstrations got uglier. When the Washington police said they could no longer keep order, Hoover called in federal troops. 
Hoover only ordered the army to contain the marchers, but the commanding officer, General Douglas MacArthur, took it upon himself to drive the veterans out of their camp with tear gas, with tanks, to set fire to their tents and shacks and send the demonstrators scrambling. Two of the veterans were killed, something like 50 or 60 were injured, but the spectacle of the U.S. Army using tanks and torches and tear gas on its own veterans, its own unarmed veterans, the spectacle of that angered and disillusioned a whole lot of people and, and in a lot of ways ended the legitimacy of Hoover's presidency. 1932 was an election year and Hoover's rival, Franklin Roosevelt, said after seeing these pictures, he knew Hoover was done. I'll talk more about Roosevelt in the next lecture. For now, I want to stay on the kind of lived experience of the Depression for ordinary people. Harry Hopkins, who was the head of a government agency at this time, the WPA, said, you can pity six men, but you can't keep stirred up over six million. It's hard to know how to tell the story of the Depression. Is it one big story with a lot of statistics and graphs? Or is it millions of individual stories, like the story of Ida Mae Gladney, like the story of each of these individual men? By 1933, nearly a quarter of the workforce was unemployed. Farm income dropped from $6 billion in 1929, which was already not a great year for farmers, to $2 billion in 1932. More than 5,000 banks failed, wiping out $7 billion in savings. Millions of people lost their homes in foreclosures. Several states, hundreds of towns and cities defaulted on their debts and bills. In towns and cities across the country, men in shabby overcoats with newspapers plugging the holes in their shoes stood in line at soup kitchens or bread lines for handouts. Tens of thousands of unemployed workers and displaced farmers took to the road in beat up jalopies or hitchhiking or huddling in boxcars, drifting south and west looking for work. Even people who were lucky enough to have jobs got paid less and they saw their work get reduced to shorter hours. So, you know, they did what people do. They hunkered down, they, they watered down the soup, they took in jobless relatives, they patched their old clothes and they tried to make do. In the early years of the depression, many employers tried to restrict employment to heads of households. That is, they fired women, especially married women, so that they wouldn't take jobs from men. But in the long run, job losses were much more severe in sort of typically male jobs like heavy industry and less so in service and clerical work. So in many cases uh, during the Depression, women became the sole breadwinners for their families. Nobody was hurt worse than farmers, though. Crop prices became so low that farmers couldn't even afford to sell their crops, to ship their crops to market. And so you had the weird spectacle of crops rotting in fields and unsellable livestock starving, dying on the hoof, while in cities, people were grubbing through garbage cans for food. Some people feared uh, revolution or radicalism, and we'll talk more about the politics of the 1930s next time. But what struck most observers in the early 1930s was the docility of the American people, their kind of eerie, stoic passivity as, as they starved. There's this deep-rooted idea among Americans that if you work hard, you will prosper, right? But the flip side of that idea is that if you don't prosper, then you must not be working hard or there must be something wrong with you. 
And this belief persisted even in the face of an economic catastrophe that very clearly was falling on all sectors of society. And this belief limited relief efforts. It limited people's willingness to take relief. Even the people suffering had a tendency to blame themselves for their own economic failure. And again, I think this is a question of what scale we tell this story at. Is the depression a story of individuals or is it a larger collective story? If you can't feed your family, is the explanation about you, about something you are doing wrong, or is there not some bigger structural story that you are a part of? Looking back on the 1930s, it seems manifestly obvious that the whole global economic system had collapsed, but people living through it still had a way of blaming themselves, of blaming their own moral failings. In the dead center of the country, in Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, Colorado, an area that became known as the Dust Bowl, the depression seemed particularly cruel and inexplicable, like an act of God. The area suffered several years of record dry weather, and after a certain point, the soil dried out and the wind just blew the soil away in these giant dust storms. There was an explanation for why this was happening. Years of over-farming, along with rapid mechanization, the adoption of combine harvesters, and also monocropping, growing only one crop, had pulverized the topsoil and killed the native grasses that prevent erosion. But that explanation was elusive at the time. And even that explanation is too local. It didn't take into account the collapse of consumer spending I talked about last week, it, the way the, I don't know, German war debt had, had broken the global economy. The Dust Bowl was an environmental disaster, but environmental disasters are human-made, not the reverse. So this, all this is the context that explains, you know, the photos you looked at this week, the Dorothea Lange photos, also the significance of a, a book or a movie like The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Lange's photos, uh, most of which she took for the government, for the Farm Security Administration, were important because they revealed America to itself. Her photos put a human face on the depression. They helped to show Americans that the depression was real, that it was really happening. She turned its statistics into recognizable human faces. That was also kind of the project of John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath, and the subsequent film by John Ford. Steinbeck's novel is kind of the classic story of the Depression and of the Oklahoma farmers, the so-called Okies, uh, driven off the land, drifting out to California in search of work and how badly they are treated along the way. When 20th Century Fox got the film rights to the novel, they were a little bit anxious about Steinbeck's politics, his radical or at least socialist politics. And so they got a very conservative director, John Ford and producer, Daryl Zanuck to make the movie and, and kind of blunt the film's politics. Zanuck was suspicious of Steinbeck. So he hired, he actually hired private detectives to investigate the migrant labor camps in California and see if the novel was true, see if the depiction of how bad things were in the novel was accurate. And he hired the Pinkertons who uh, historically are, have been the hired goons of big business to investigate this. And the Pinkertons came back and said, yeah, the novel pretty much is true. So he made the movie and he didn't blunt Steinbeck's politics a whole lot. And I like this story because again, it illustrates that the depression was 
first and foremost, an economic crisis, but it was also a crisis of explanation and representation. People had to be convinced it was happening. They had to be convinced to see it as a national, even a global phenomenon, as something bigger than any one individual. And therefore, they had to be convinced that the solution would have to be bigger than any one individual. And the novel and the film, uh, The Grapes of Wrath, are both actually about that. There are repeated scenes in it in which characters struggle to understand what is happening at the scale of the individual, and they have to kind of move to a more collective understanding of what's going on. So for instance, there's a scene in both the book and the film where these tractors are coming to drive the tenant farmers off their land. And, and one of the farmers, Muley, threatens to shoot the guy driving the tractor. The guy driving the tractor says, if you shoot me, they'll just send another tractor. He says, I'll shoot him. He says, what are you going to do? You can't shoot us all. He says, I'll shoot the president of the bank. You can't shoot a bank. The bank is bigger than any one man. And Muley's like, well, who do I shoot? because the depression was a problem that couldn't be comprehended or solved at the level of the individual. And ultimately, the message of both the novel and the film is that only solidarity can save us, that we need to think at a bigger level than just individual levels. The, the novel embraces uh, class solidarity, a kind of working class solidarity, while the film, which is more conservative, embraces family as its solution. But both of them are about how individuals can't make it on their own, how we need to think in terms of bigger units. And that is, I think, one of the big lessons of this history. Another example of sort of zooming out to see larger patterns is the Great Migration, the movement of millions of African Americans out of the South in the first half of the 20th century. When we think of the Depression, we often think of, of people like the Joad family in The Grapes of Wrath or Dorothea Lange's photo of the migrant mother, at least partly because they are white. I said that Lange put a human face on the Depression. Often she put a white face on the Depression. Lange took pictures of black sharecroppers too and of African-American poverty too. But she and her bosses at the Farm Security Administration understood that the idea of white farmers driven from their land, of white workers turned into migrant laborers, would have more power, would stir up more sympathy among Americans, among white Americans at least. In the 1930s, maybe 600,000 people left the Dust Bowl states uh, for the West. But in the what we now call the Great Migration, as many as 6 million African-Americans left the South. But that Great Migration was spread out over several decades. M many left during the Depression, but many also left before and after. So this makes the Great Migration a difficult thing to see unless you zoom way out. Unlike the Dust Bowl, it was not started by one precipitating event. Unlike, say, the flow of immigrants through Ellis Island in the late 19th or early 20th century, there was not one bottleneck that everybody came through. Unlike the civil rights movement, there was no famous leader to organize the Great Migration. In fact, uh, some Black leaders at the time, like Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington, discouraged uh, African Americans from leaving the South. But nevertheless, people like Ida Mae Gladney just started slipping away. So it's only in retrospect that we can see the Great Migration as a single phenomenon, something that shaped the whole character of the country. I mean, no Southern state, no Northern city would be untouched by this migration, but it's much less famous, much less remembered than say the Great Depression. It's not hard to see why African-Americans started leaving the South. This was the age of Jim Crow segregation. 
We talked a few weeks ago about how the southern states work to undo the gains of reconstruction to create this new legal edifice of segregation. And by the 1910s, 1920s, they had built a system that was pretty much as close to slavery as the 13th Amendment would allow. So you take this system, the cruelty, the dehumanization of this system, I'm not going to go into detail describing it again. And you add to that the economic hardship of the era, the decline of farm prices, the poverty, which of course fell hardest on the lowest rungs of the economy. Add to that systems of lynching and, and convict leasing, which kept people terrorized, afraid. When they got the chance, African-Americans in the South did what people looking for freedom and safety and opportunity have done for centuries. They did what the Puritans did under the tyranny of British rule. They did what the Irish did when there was nothing to eat. They did what the Okies in the Dust Bowl did. They did what refugees from war and poverty do today. They left. So they started slipping away. Young people on their own first, then families moving together. And what was a trickle in the first decade of the 20th century became a stream in the 1910s and then a river in the 1920s and the 1930s. And we call it the Great Migration. When we call it that, that label is supposed to kind of, like Wilkerson's book says, include it in the narrative of U.S. history, like the Great Migrations that brought European immigrants to America. Some people say the label Great Migration is too benign, that, that this should be called a forced exodus, that we should think of African-Americans moving north, not as internal immigrants, but as refugees. There were pull factors as well as push factors. When immigration restriction came in in the 1920s, cutting off immigration from Europe, this cut off a supply of cheap factory labor. And uh, the northern steel mills and railroads and packing houses started sending labor scouts, uh, often in secret, often in disguise, to recruit black workers in the South. By the 1930s, when there were no jobs to be had, they largely stopped recruiting. But by then, African-Americans were coming anyway. Eventually, the white South realized what was happening, that their cheap labor was leaving. They tried to make it illegal to recruit black labor in the South. They charged hefty fines and fees. They tried to choke off the flow of information about the North. They confiscated black newspapers and periodicals from places like New York and Chicago. And to a great extent, the Great Migration was a kind of triumph of the black press. Black newspapers like the Chicago Defender, uh, the New York Amsterdam News, urged African-Americans in the South to come north. They said, come here. Life is better here. They ran stories celebrating the success of African-Americans in the North and kind of soft peddling the challenges that they still faced there. They posted job listings. They posted train schedules and even advice just on how to leave. When Southern officials started confiscating uh, the Chicago Defender in the mail, they got the black porters who worked on railroad cars to drop bundles of newspapers at stations. Southern officials started stopping trains and finding all sorts of pretenses to arrest African-Americans who they thought were moving north, tear up their tickets and send them home. That's why Ida Gladney's family bought multiple tickets step by step by step so that at each stop, it would look like they were just taking a short trip and not actually moving to the north. Here's what the numbers look like in the aggregate. When the migration began, something like 90% of all African-Americans lived in the south and 90% of those lived in rural areas. By the time it was over, about half of all African-Americans were living in the north and west and a rural people had become urban. 
And, you know, the modern United States, modern U.S. culture is just unimaginable without this transformation, without this migration. John Coltrane, the sharecropper, became John Coltrane, the great jazz musician. Bill Russell, the paper mill worker, became Bill Russell, the NBA pioneer. Zora Neale Hurston, the maid, became Zora Neale Hurston, the novelist and anthropologist. All these individual stories that together add up to the huge mass collective story that is 20th century US history. If you zoom way out, you might say that the Great Depression and the Great Migration are in fact the same story or part of the same story. Uh, the displacement of agricultural labor, uh, people being shaken free of the land. And if you put it like that in these kind of dispassionate aggregate terms, the transformation seems inevitable. Maybe it was inevitable, but that didn't make it any easier to live through it. This is my meta point for this lecture. When you look at history, you need to be able to zoom in and to zoom out. You need to zoom in to the individual bravery of people like Ida Gladney, but also to zoom out to comprehend the mass migrations and economic trends they were a part of. Here's a question for you to think about. What are your family's stories? What larger histories are you a part of? I always like to make a pitch uh, to people to ask your family for their stories. If you've got grandparents, if you've got older relatives, they undoubtedly have great stories. They might not think of those stories though as being history. We have no choice but to live our lives at an individual scale, but we don't by and large see the choices we make and the things that happen to us as products of grand historical forces. But the beginning of historical consciousness, the beginning of citizenship is to see that what happens to you isn't just about you, to see that you are part of a system and that things happen on different scales, to zoom in and out, to see the individual story and the big picture is kind of the beginning of historical wisdom. Thanks very much for watching. California is a garden of Eden a paradise to live in or see but believe it or not you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the do re mi